0: You're listening to a podcast from Meaning of Life TV.
1: Hi, welcome to Culturally Determined. I'm your host, Arya Cohen Wade, and my guest today is David Ollinger. David, could you please introduce yourself?
0: My name is indeed David Ollinger. Um, I am somebody who comes from a philosophical background and occasionally pokes his head out to talk about political things. I have a an interest in sort of uh, the rise of illiberal ideologies in general in politics, particularly the kind of woke left and the new ideas of politics I see there. So I've commented on that several times. But I guess today we're going to talk about the only subject there is at the end of the day, which is my main man, Emmanuel Kant.
1: Right. So you reach out to me. I'd have this conversation because you had I yeah. guess uh, a bee in your bonnet or something about uh, some recent the recent uses of Immanuel Kant in the discourse in particular one article I guess pushed you over the edge and that ran in the Washington Post opinion section uh, we'll link to it the author is Mark uh, Thiessen if that's how you say his name Thiessen I don't know Tiffany Amber Thiessen it's spelled that same way uh, Mark Thiessen the danger of critical race theory and um it just it ran on November eleventh, and um, and the piece got a lot of blowback, uh, online at least, uh, for some I guess accused uh, historical factual inaccuracy related to the claims it was making about um the history of critical theory or philos uh facts about the history of philosophy, mm-hmm. and um and I'll just say at the outset that this guy Mark Tyson, um is as far as so he's like a former bush administration official speechwriter you know has a sinecure at the washington post he's he's basically just a down the line conservative commentator, and he is as far as I can tell like maybe the stupidest person who has a regular like media outlet in a mainstream um you know uh, 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 he appears regularly in the mainstream media uh and he will basically take like the i don't know he seems to just spit out the stupidest lowest common denominator conservative stuff that is not like right part level stuff, but just, you know, like the algorithm averaging Fox news opinion, he will like spit out a column, you know, rehearsing that. And, um, and I, he, he, I believe he like first made his mark <laughs> such as it is related to defending torture, uh, back during like the mid days of the Bush administration. So he has been around for a while and is one of these guys who, you know, is, seemingly you know uncancelable and adds nothing to the discourse but is employed nonetheless that's at least my view of him as someone who doesn't you know rarely reads his columns except when they get circulated because they're so bad so that's mark Thiessen, and he decided I, to I write
0: a <laughs> danger know his, of race
1: theory yeah
0: i didn't know his history um but just judging I, by this article he was
1: he was a, a speechwriter for you know he was like a conservative apparatchik Speechwriter for Donald Rumsfeld graduated up to the White House in the second Bush administration and was a speechwriter for George W. Bush. And then after the collapse of Bush administration, landed at AEI, American Enterprise Institute, and has this Washington Post column. And yeah, he somehow you know, he's he's he sort of like keeps on chugging no matter you know no matter what uh see, you know uh, seemingly, but, well, he, but went- he really stepped in it this time more than usual.
0: Yeah, um well, he made this expansive, well he quoted an expansive statement about what critical theory is, um by from a man named Alan Guelzo. And then he just sort of treats it as established for the rest of his article, um that 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 Guelzo is telling the truth about this. And Guelzo is um, a political, well, first of all, he's a a historian, not a philosopher. Um, He's not even an intellectual historian, and he's not a historian of the period in which um, Kant lived. so, or any of the other real figures that he takes on are. So, um, you know, if he's just acting as a journalist why are you taking a political historian of the romantic era of the civil war era taking his word about a german enlightenment philosopher um you know
1: yeah it's it's okay it, let me just actually let me just read the opening of this piece because that's where you know we're where we're going to launch from so this is martinez's piece uh, and so actually and so somewhat crucially he wrote this after you know the um the virginia gubernatorial election which seemingly turned on issues related to critical race theory being taught in public schools but like it was after the election so it was it was so it was like like, a couple weeks behind the times like why was he even writing this piece This kind of thing you write before the election not after the election but here's what he said by now most americans have heard of critical race theory but many do not know just how radical or pernicious crt is because as a new study from the American Enterprise Institute shows, the media does not explain its key tenets in its coverage. So I asked one of our nation's preeminent historians, Princeton University professor, Alan C. Guelzo, to explain CRT and why it is so dangerous. Critical race theory, Guelzo says, is a subset of critical theory that began with Immanuel Kant in the 1790s. It was a response to and rejection of (laughs) the principles of the Enlightenment and the age of reason on which the American Republic was founded. Kant believed that, quote, reason was inadequate to give shape to our lives, and so he said about, quote, developing a theory of being critical of reason, Lozo says. And the next paragraph explains that this idea led to eventually a Nazi, you know, the, the rise of Nazism.
0: I don't even want to touch that. But virtually <laughs> every claim you just read in that quote was wrong. And I mean, like, clearly wrong. Uh, I mean, just like um, consult any encyclopedia articles. Uh, much less, yeah, but we'll get into Guelzo. but I I mean, I want to, I had at least three bees in my bonnet, um, as you'll recollect, because uh, do you remember way back in the day when we actually exchanged a few messages over the piece in the stone, uh, which, um uh, was I told, told you at the time? It was uh, what a couple of years ago now.
1: Yes, and we'll we'll link to this piece because you brought it back to my attention, and it was yeah from 2017 and the Stone, which is the New York Times like sort of philo- popular philosophy subvertical. I'm not sure if it still exists, but um, and yeah, it was sort of uh, relating Trump is Trump and Trumpism to critical theory um, and. And so forth. So, yeah, yeah. And then we, we you and I did a dialogue a couple of years. I don't know if it was right after that, maybe a year or so later about um, Trump and postmodernism, mm-hmm. um, which we can link to. And whether Trump is a postmodern figure or postmodern thought sheds any light on um, what was happening circa 2018 in America or not. Um, so, yeah, so we've talked about this a little bit over the years. But of course, I'm a total layperson when it comes to philosophy and you are. Uh, well, you can, are you an expert? You can say whether or not you're an expert. I'm knowledgeable.
0: Um, I'll tell you I'm more than knowledgeable enough to refute this crap. <laughs> um, but anyway, this piece in The Times, it was uh, part of the Stone series, was written by, once again, Casey Williams, a PhD student in literature at Duke University. Um, so, again, wrong field, um, junior person, but apparently... And the stone is um, edited by a philosopher, or it was. And so, I mean, I, she just made statements about um, Kant that were also just completely wrong. And... Um, the third bee in my bonnet was James Lindsay, who we, you know... Um, Kathy Young and I put body blows into James Lindsay for fully two hours in a uh, previous dialogue. So you can check that out if you want. But between the three of them... Um, so Washington Post, New York Times... James Lindsay's a little low rent, but he's um, he's influential. You know, they all had this kind of substantially same view of Kant. Um, One was, two were on the right and were decrying Kant's influence. One was on the left and was, if not celebrating, at least um, sort of affirming his insights. and they all kind of attributed the same views to Kant. And they were all just catastrophically wrong. Like, And this is not my opinion. This is not. There have been lots of different ways of interpreting Kant. There are lots of controversy over uh, what Kant thought and what it's important was, what, it, what is important within his thought. Mm. Um, but of those many interpretations, none of them are this, I mean, this stuff is just do not pass go, do not collect $200, go straight (laughs) to jail wrong. And so this seems
1: like, you know, freshman philosophy 101, if you, if the student wrote this, they would like fail. And, mm -hmm. um, and it's almost, you know, um, you know, opinion pieces obviously are not held to the Standard that a stand you know a regular news piece was in a major media outlet like like the Washington Post, but they are That's generally no good
0: reason they're generally um,
1: fact checked um and it's almost one wonders was like I have this sort of semi plausible theory that um media outlets are letting or either sort of purposely publishing stuff they know is bad to get to drive up get people riled up on Twitter and drive up online engagement or they sort of mischaracterize. the piece is about when they're tweeting about it so that it gets people mad and people do like hate clicks because a click is still a click Mm -hmm. and i almost wonder if this is sort of something like that or maybe just uh, another pet theory of mine is that you know this is more related to the new york times opinion section that the writers who like the um fact checkers and copy editors don't particularly like they'll let more mistakes through so that egg ends up on their face and um you know, someone like Brett Stevens would be perhaps an example of this. This is, this is a, I have no proof of this theory whatsoever, but it, it seems like, you know, if the, the bed
0: bug incident.
1: Uh... Well, yeah. I mean, that was sort of, I mean, he, that was like him in his extracurricular time fighting with people, but just, you know, the people 15 years ago, I feel like the editors would have like either said, no, don't publish this, or they would have done the corrections themselves before it went out such that there wouldn't be a, you know, or whatever but now i don't know yeah it, there's all sort of sorts of perverse incentives in, in the online media related to traffic and stuff so it's possible that someone because this is you know, what he says is seemingly so wrong that how did this get through and maybe they were like well let's just let this one ride and see what happens and we 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 all hate mark said anyway because he thinks torture is a good idea and wrote a whole book about it and blah 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 so that's my that will be like my cockamamie theory of how this happened but but who knows? Okay, so how, so how are they wrong, and is, is or is not, did, did Emmanuel Kant say, reason is bad, and that's oh, how we end up with critical race theory 300 years later, or whatever? <sighs>
0: <laughs> well, let me just, so the quote, you read the quote in the article, um, in the Washington Post article by Tyson. um, And that comes from a podcast that Welzo did, um, which was an AEI podcast. And he just talks a lot about the intellectual roots of uh, um, critical theory and uh, displays, gives a sumptuous display of how little he knows about it. Oh my God, this is so bad. All right, so let me just read some of the things he says and just comment on it. Kant lived at the end of a century known as the Enlightenment, the age of reason. So far, roughly true. <laughs> but he feared that experience had shown that reason was inadequate to give shape to our lives. Palpably, ridiculously false. Um, Kant was a. Thoroughly rationalistic philosopher. Um, Well, I'll I'll get through more of that in a moment, but I'll continue reading here. There had to be a way of knowing things that went beyond reason. And for him, that meant developing a theory of being critical of reason, hence critical theory. Absolutely not. There had to be a way of knowing things that went beyond reason. Look, this is just, if you read the first critique, which is a very difficult work, but um, even if you don't understand much, you will understand very quickly because Kant beats you over the head with it again and again and again, is you cannot access the world except beyond reason. And um, his whole project is about showing preventing people from applying the tools of reason beyond where it has legitimate application. Um, So he thinks trying to use reason to discover the existence or the inexistence of God or the origin or lack of origin of the universe are all
2: errors that are are any
0: such project is uh, doomed to failure because of the nature of reason itself and leads us into what he calls transcendental illusion. So it can make it seem like things are true or some things are knowable, which actually are not knowable. So the, the idea that he wants some other way of knowing the universe, he's very explicitly, repeatedly against pining after any kind of um, non-rational insight into the world and is all about sort of limiting ourselves to what we can know and what we can know through reason. Uh, was that relatively clear? Yes, I think
1: so. Okay, so he wrote so one of Immanuel Kant's German philosophers most famous works is the critique of pure reason or a critique of pure reason. Um well, is that the, word, whether it's a critique or the critique. Um, and the, the articles in German are different. So, okay, and so um, the word critique is in there, and then today people are exercising <laughs> about something called critical race theory, and so that seems to be the connection um that maybe. Uh, mr guelzo uh drew it, do you see okay so this is wrong do you, do you have an idea how okay so who is okay well, let's well who is this guy guelzo well i'm just I, so we talked about this a little bit before the recording he is not some random prank or just a um someone who like makes his life in right-wing think tanks he is a um he's a primarily a, a writer about the civil war the american civil war and wrote a biography of robert e lee that just came out and i'd read the review of it in the times before a couple weeks before the thesis piece came out and the Times said that this biography of lee is is good and is a not it is neither a apology for lee nor a like lee was the worst person in american history is like a fair-minded look at lee and his psychological psychological origins related to his childhood and his feckless father and um And this is related and you know, so this is not just some guy who would be like trotted out to say stupid things. And yeah, and he's written other. Yeah. He's written other books about Lincoln and the civil war that are not just like right-wing crap. Um, And also, Mm -hmm. so, but he is not a tenured professor as far as I can tell. Maybe I got this wrong, but he works at something called, his position according to Wikipedia as a senior research scholar in the council of the humanities and director of the initiative on politics and Statemanship in the James Madison program at Princeton university. So that, that mm-hmm. sort of sounds like, I don't know exactly what that is, but it sort of sounds like the sort of thing that like rich right-wing people fund as sort of like an adjunct onto a university, somewhat akin to the Hoover institution or Institute, whatever that's called. Um, because James, Matt I would was, assume so there's some conservatives uh-huh. who say, who really love James Madison. Um, and. So so he has an affiliation with Princeton, but he might not be a tenure track professor. Director's in, initiative on in politics and Statemanship is what his Princeton thing is. So yeah, so okay, so this guy is both not a Rando crank um and not like you know Ben Shapiro writing a book about the Civil War or something. Um, but at the same time, it's not like he is um, you know, David Blight or something, who is perhaps the like most renowned uh, popular. Uh, historian of the American Civil War, and but he, he like is it within right wing world because he's doing stuff for the American Enterprise Institute. So sort of like, how do you think this came about that like even like Mark Teeson even like knows this guy exists or knows this guy has something to say about Kant? And then how does this thing that he wrote or said about Kant that's so wrong end up like taking over? Why did, why does he think this? Do you have any thoughts about all this? Well,
0: I mean, clearly, it's it's the 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 first question is easy to answer. Is clearly Mark Deason just saw this podcast or the transcript of the podcast to which he links in his article? Um, so apparently, Guelzo was sounding off about Kant um, from his AEI post or uh, on an AEI podcast um, and. Keyson credulously sucked it up. Um, So that's easy enough. And, you know, why does he sound off on um, Kant and sort of the history of philosophy? Well, I mean, I obviously don't know the man, but um, a lot of people feel very entitled to just... uh, make assertions about the history of philosophy, and they're very confident about it because they won't get called on it because nobody else who's a pundit or a writer or somebody big in media intellectual sphere knows any history of philosophy either. Um, So just the ability to just go crazy and just sort of make it up as you go along when the subject turns to philosophy Um, It's a temptation that uh, a lot of big name intellectuals have been unable to resist. Um, There was one that got picked up in philosophy world. Um, A guy
2: had won a Pulitzer Prize for opinion journalism, and in His
0: Pulitzer Prize-winning essay, he had written this, um, he had used the terms either metaphysical or epistemological, or both metaphysical and epistemological, and he wrote a follow-up essay admitting that he had no idea what they meant, and that he suspected they really didn't mean anything, and that philosophers were just faking. Oh, God. I'll mention this as well. Um,
2: uh, Batya
0: Sargon-Hunger. Mm-hmm.
1: Um, I'm familiar. Who's, She's an opinion editor at Newsweek, right?
0: Yes, and she just came out with a book which I downloaded but haven't read yet uh, about sort of Wokeness's effect on the news. Um, and she was being interviewed by uh, Megan Daum on her podcast. Um, so I was just listening to that. And she apparently, Sargon uh, Unger, who's, you know, generally been known for the past few years as a kind of anti-woke commentator. So on the side of the angels there.
1: Um, uh, well, let's not invoke, you know, viewpoint. Theory or whatever you want to call, it. but yeah, she is. So she, yes, the book is like anti-cancel culture or something along those. Or anti. No,
0: it's not standpoint theory. It's um, I'm being realist about it, and I'm right. Uh, but she, uh, she, I guess was uh, in some doctoral um, literature program. I don't know if it was comparative literature or some European language or whatever, but she was studying literature as a graduate student. And um, in this interview with Down, she said that really uh, the people writing about novels that came 300 years ago, um, there's nothing new that you can say about a novel that's come out 300 years ago and that people have been writing about ever since. So what they do is just make stuff up and make up incomprehensible stuff that um, they kind of launder and publish and comment, you know, incestuously comment on. She was dismissing the entire humanities as basically a nonsense factory that then sort of seeped out into the public sphere and started making nonsense in other places. So that's the level. Uh, and even I was depressed to see Megan Down seem to kind of go along with it. Um, I don't know if she pushed back because I just had to shut it off and couldn't listen anymore. Um, but, you know, that's the level of respect for the humanities that you get in a lot of the broader public discourse. Um, if F.R. Levis and CP Snow could see the world today, the, the way it's been turned upside down.
2: Um, uh.
1: yeah, well, okay, you so you have a pre-decor that you've expressed. Why do you think that um, that Guelzo, the fellow Guelzo, would have started with Kant? in saying that like that was the turn where everything went wrong because I would think and some, so the average American even like you know somewhat educated reader of the Washington Post opinion section probably knows almost nothing about Immanuel Kant and I would say the you know the only philosopher um who the you know that sort of person has any idea of who it was would be Karl Marx. And then that Karl Marx was also the philosopher who you could pin as the evil one who, you know, turned everything, um, you know, uh, wrong and led to the gulag. So that would be like the sort of move that conservatives have been doing uh, for a century. And but why did why do you think he's going to Kant instead of saying, well, actually, it was Marx who really started all this, blah, blah, blah. Then you and then you get the communism um, in there also. And that, you know, your work is pretty much done. When you're on the right wing, like sort of intellectual grift circuit, um, from my perspective. So, what 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 is it? Why do you think um, why do you think Welzo is looking at Kant or, it, or or what? And is it? Just, and it could it just be that this idea that critique, critical, like these words are similar, could it be it be something like that? Silly and stupid. Um,
0: it it is maximally silly and stupid, but. Um...
2: No, the the reason, no, he he didn't
0: choose Kant at random, or um, part of why you would want to go back to Kant. Well, partly we're going to be discovering the answer to that question as we go on. But um, partly Kant is such an immense figure in modern philosophy that
2: um,
0: in one way or another, almost everything that happened after him is traceable back to him. Uh, Robert Random, a very uh, both controversial and celebrated philosopher, with his usual kind of penchant for purple prose, um, said that we could say of Kant what Swinburne says of the sea, he is the great gray mother of us all. Okay. (laughs) And there are continuities um, from Kant to um, Hegel, from Hegel to Feuerbach, and then to Marx and Engels, and the postmoderns, at least, invoke Kantian terms sometimes. Some of them do. And um, I don't want to give you the real answer because it would take too long and be too complicated, and I think it would confuse everybody. But there, there, the the continuities are. Are there, but they're very
2: basic. Um, and these,
0: so I, di- I just pointed out that there are these continuities between um, Kant, Hegel, Feuerbach, Marx, people beyond Marx through people like Foucault, and they often had ideas of themselves as engaging in critiques and of um, examining the self-contradictions and thing,
2: but the
0: idea of critique and um, the sort of methods that they employed, that all these different figures employed, evolved so much across that time
2: that um, just using the word "critique" can be quite misleading because
0: what um, what Marx means by critique is very different from what Kant meant by critique, because they've um, gone through this evolution from Kant to Hegel. So. From Kant to Hegel, um, Hegel did a lot to historicize Kant and to bring a role for history into a kind of idealist philosophy. And then Feuerbach tried to take the historicism of Hegel and to uh, materialize it. So instead of seeing historical process of these as of A sort of evolution of systems and arrangements of power and wealth. He sees it as the evolution of arrangements of production and of uh, material economic facts. Um, And that, of course, is what Marx inherits. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, it just, yes, the continuities are there, but the There are profound changes and disagreements between these figures as well. And when you just sort of look at the continuities and ignore the vast, huge differences, you get a wildly distorted picture of what
2: all these people thought.
1: Yeah. And, you know, so, of course, I, you know, know nothing about these various philosophers because I'm... Just another ignorant you know, layperson, and so I can't, you know, comment on any of that. But what is what does seem interesting to me is like, you know, why why is this idea in the zeitgeist uh, to use the word that maybe is appropriate that you know there are the these European philosophers from long ago had these ideas and they were bad and. Uh-huh. 250 years later, they're telling your little white child that they are bad because they're white or something. Like, like this seems to be an idea that holds ha- some attraction to figures on the right that like there was a um poison seed or poison branch or something within European thought that like led to our led to our current problems in various ways. Does that, well, does that
0: make sense to you? You're 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 putting um I would say you're caricaturing the view if it weren't so caricatured itself. Yeah, I mean, the the really sort of vulgarized, um, dumbed down version, which is unfortunately what you get a lot of times, even at sort of top places like Washington Post or New York Times, is that there's some boogeyman who enters at... Um, some point in the Western tradition and it goes from right to wrong um, or it just goes off track. And that's very much what um, Guelzo gives us. Um, I don't have have the quote I'm thinking of right now in front of me, but he basically says that in the Enlightenment, um, Adam Smith figured out economics Joseph Butler figured out religion, and Locke and Montesquieu, which is an interesting pairing, figured out uh, politics. And, you know, reason was fixing everything, or at least laying the groundwork for the kind of correct theories of all the different problems of life. And then in comes Kant, and Kant, we'll get to this, is that um, counter-enlightenment, and then everything kind of goes wrong. That's the sort of vulgar theory. Um, But the impulse to trace what we're seeing on the newsstands today to the hoary old tones of um, high Western culture hundreds of years ago is perfectly correct. And I don't think an account of these political disagreements we have can be complete without tracing them back to um, different early modern ideas. So I, I, the exercise is fundamentally correct. We should be tracing our own ideas back to the giants of um, philosophical thought, or, as Robert Brandom called them, the Mighty dead uh the problem is not that we are doing that. the problem is that we are doing it so incompetently uh, mm-hmm. because you know a lot of the university has just given up on the humanities uh, totally decentered it from basic curricula uh. A bachelor's degree is, at a lot of places, uh, either sort of half uh, what an old bachelor's degree was and half learning a trade in advertising or agriculture or something. And at other places, uh bachelor's degree is, um, do your parents have $200,000? Tell us what you think an educated person is. <laughs> uh, And, you know, a few places, my alma mater, um, the University of Chicago and places like St. John's actually try to give people a broad grounding in history, philosophy, literature, basic science, and um, languages.
2: Uh, Boy, that turned into a rant, didn't it?
0: But no, let's not dismiss as silly this tracing back ideas to uh, long dead figures, because those figures uh, do an enormous amount to shape what we take for granted, the values we have. Our understanding of what a moral question is owes so much to Kant today. Uh, Or, you know, little things like people use the word paradigm, fairly common now, Um, and they use it in a specific way, which is different from the way they used it in or before 1962, because in 1962, um, or maybe 63, I can't remember. an academic book about the history and philosophy of science called The Structure of Scientific Revolutions came out. And it had a notion of paradigm, uh, which became quite influential inside and outside the academy. And the people reading paradigm, the people saying the word paradigm today don't know that they're borrowing it from a book about the history and philosophy of science 60 years ago but Mm -hmm. they are doing that and that's just typical of social intellectual life for the human animal if you don't know your history you're really defined by it um, Mm -hmm. in ways you will not be aware of
2: well let me let me ask you a question that's occurring to me is a little off of
1: what we're talking about but you know i've i've long thought so i was i was an english major and i've in college and i took one philosophy class and i've long thought that like something that's interesting about studying literature is um the contingent nature of literature so Mm -hmm. if if william shakespeare had you know been like stillborn then you could say western culture is radically different because we we don't Mm -hmm. have his works um you know that's at least an argument um and no one was there wouldn't have been someone else who wrote hamlet etc. If Isaac Newton had been stillborn, you know, uh, the basic laws of gravity and uh, calculus someone else would have discovered them at a roughly same or different time and I think with calculus they're like it's like this concurrent discovery there's some term for that that you know, like this other guy Leib- Leibniz, Leibniz was like, discovered it discovered calculus yeah. at the same time. So hmm. um so I always thought that was sort of interesting because you know um uh, Shakespeare, you know, very easily couldn't have been born, and then things can be very different mm-hmm. today. Um, but you know, so sort of like the it's it's, it's a little bit of a parallel, to like the great man theory, of history or something. Like if Napoleon hadn't been born, would you know, mm-hmm. would Europe be radically different today, et cetera. Mm-hmm. So I guess that's sort of just like a parallel game to think about. But how does how do philosophers think about this? So if if Kant had never been born, is the his is Western civilization radically different? Is Western philosophy radically different, or would someone have formulated this stuff more or less as as he did, and then, you know, Hegel would have come along and done his thing and, and so on and so forth. Does that, does that make sense?
0: Yeah, no, I understand. Um, the short and unsatisfying answer is a lot of different people will have a very wide set of views about answering that question. Um, For one thing, you make the assumption in the contrast to science um, that there could not have been a radically different science. Um, For instance, could we describe motion with a fundamentally different language than um, the laws given to us by Newtonian mechanics? Or is there a way of conceiving of uh physical matter that doesn't make reference to atoms and electrons and protons? I mean, to some extent we know that there is, because at quantum at the quantum level, um such concepts don't take hold, but that's there's a lot of complication there. Um could there have been a, a different chemistry or something that's serves uh, some of the functions that our chemistry does, uh, but been radically different from our chemistry. That's at least something you have to, I think, pause over and think of. Um, And it also depends on the kind of philosophy. Um, So some people like uh, Sidgwick have basically seen, he compared... uh, doing moral philosophy to something like mathematics, um, where you thought numbers existed. And we don't do experiments with numbers. Uh, You can't empirically examine numbers, but we can have a kind of intellectual insight. Um, You know, I'm being unfair to this view, but I'm just putting it out there quickly. in the same way, there is a moral order that exists in the world and that we can have a kind of intellectual insight to it. So on in, in that kind of view, it's just purely our minds conforming to something outside ourselves. Mm-hmm. So you would expect that eventually the right view, um, if, if you happen to take this view to be right, you would think that the right view would eventually be discovered. Um, Some people think that uh, morality, say, is constructed within a society uh, in a historical context. So what is moral for us is partly something that's determined independently of us, but partly something that we shape. And then it's not just a matter of going outside of ourselves and trying to make a theory adequate to some, or trying to describe adequately some order outside ourselves, it's sort of examining this order in mid-creation uh amidst ourselves. So it doesn't have the same kind of independence. So, um, and that's only, I've only talked about moral philosophy, the epistemology, metaphysics, aesthetics, and other things could have There are are lots of ways you could take that. There are lots of views you could take. I'd say probably the majority of people think that sort of the right philosophical views are out there to be discovered. So it would be more like science than
2: literature. Mm -hmm. Um,
0: And to some extent, I agree with that. Um, But there's a lot of nuance.
2: And in some ways, this is related to
1: the whole current dispute, it, because you know there's people who think that the tenets of Western science, since they were largely developed by straight white, you know, able-bodied uh, men of European descent, then mm-hmm. the the you know, various um, uh, prejudices that that sort of person had, you know, carried into the work they did. Um, And so, you know, like, I guess this is some sort of like relativism of like, well, you know, maybe the people in some different, you know, part of the world or something different culture have their own science that is equally valid or something. And that's, I don't know uh, that at least, I mean, at least describing this line of thought (laughs) accurately, because I just, I just listened to that episode you did on James Lindsay. And one of the things that's, you know, a sort of, Oh, these woke liberals are going nuts kind of thing would be like, um, that, you know, there's some like racism inherent in in mathematics or something. Um, Mm -hmm. and, you know, and maybe, you know, people, people who aren't white would decide that math works differently in some different way or, but then it, it doesn't, it all seems to get back to this idea of like, is there some like, um, you know, uh, ideal truth that we're like discovering, or is it all like contingent and based on power relations and and stuff like that?
0: Right. So, I mean, that's the view that Welzo, or the relativistic view that you just sort of outlined, is the view that Welzo is trying to keep out. You know, with both hands uh, as vehemently as it can. And I think he's right to do so. Um, I do think that the anti-rationalist turn, um, which uh, has informed a lot of uh, intellectuals in the 20th century and beyond, leads to the kind of um, absurd relativisms of wondering whether some aborigines uh, folk medicine is as good as Western scientific medicine. And yes, people really do contend that. Um,
1: I mean there's, the, there's people of... there's educated people who believe that, you know, certain medicines that um were developed to combat parasites are actually the best thing to um combat the you know novel coronavirus. And that's a very contentious but, but this, the, topic. The, the,
0: the fulcrum there, as, and this is where, you know, uh, we find some tiny kernels of agreement between me and Gwelsa. The fulcrum there is rationalism. It's do you think that the competition between some Aboriginal folk science, folk medicine, and Western medicine is to be adjudicated by means of? reason and evidence and basic notions of objectivity. If you do, then you're going to say, well, Western medicine is clearly superior because we can predict and explain a much wider range of things, and we can see that we give people these medicines, they get better, right? If you think that um, adjudicating them in terms of reason and evidence and um, experimentation is just weighting uh, Western medicine over Aborigine medicine and implying and applying this sort of uh, merely Western construct of rationalism beyond where it has legitimate domain, then there's you're not going to be able to say one is clearly superior to the other, because you have no standard, sort of transcendent standard to appeal to which would make such an adjudication possible. And um, that leads into really nasty stuff. And Guelzo's not wrong to be scared of that stuff. And it has been very much in the air uh, to no no good effect on our political discourse. But all that being said, that doesn't give him an excuse to say things about Kant that are just not true. Um, and he just says things about Kant that are just not true. And um,
2: yeah, can I read you this one other thing he says? Sure. This um, is Guelzo.
0: This is Guelzo. So um, I think the debate over basic notions of rationality um is a legitimate divide. And I'm like Guelzo interested in standing up on the rationalist side. Broadly construed, there's a lot to be said about um what is reason. And you know, i the quote unquote rationalists, the uh, sort of Sam Harris types and uh Stephen Pinker types, I think often have a very impoverished view of what reasoning is. Um there's uh much too much emphasis on scientific reasoning, which is a very important kind of reasoning, but only one, and we should not try to um assimilate the kind of reasoning that goes into moral and political thinking and thinking about art to scientific thinking. Um, because that's just privileging uh one species of reason over another in a way that's quite um, unmotivated. But I am nevertheless broadly um, interested in defending uh, universal norms of reason. So things like uh, adherence to evidence, uh, logical coherence, so non-contradiction, Simplicity of explanation, uh, inference to the best explanation. I think these are universal principles of reason uh, and not a construct of any particular culture. Um, so, but you just can't identify Kant as the kind of splitting point where the sort of rationalist and rational skeptics diverged. So,
2: and even putting that aside, let me just read you something. Okay.
0: So Kant says, I'm, I'm quoting Guelza So Kant says, what can we know for certain? Well, if we rely strictly on reason, we discover that reason only works on what our physical senses tell us, and that's not much. Reason can't penetrate into the essence of things. Some other tool was needed to reach what he called the thing in itself. Pausing, no, you cannot reach the thing in itself. You should not try attempting to reach the thing in itself. It will only lead you into illusion. Um, resuming.
1: Is, is, that so, wh- is that what the critique of pure reason actually refers to, this idea that like, if you just think really hard, like you'll be able to figure everything out,
2: even metaphysic things existing in the metaphysical realm?
0: He does think that you can establish metaphysics by by the self-reflection of reason. So, um, reason in examining itself can discover the basic structure that it imposes or informs the entire empirical world. About. Okay.
1: And so, um, so what is, so what is, when he, when he, when he titled his work Critique of Pure Reason, what, mm-hmm. what did that, what did that mean to him?
0: So the word, which is just critique, K R I
2: T I K, has
0: roughly the same Associations like um artistic critique, um you know, so critical commentary doesn't always mean critical in a negative sense, right um, or critical essays could just mean describing works of literature, not um, criticizing them uh, the same thing is true for Kant he, he Wants to map out the basic faculties of reason, um, analyze them into their parts, and then explain how they interact. And he wants to fix the um, legitimate domain of reason, and he thinks
2: that'll make our...
0: Uh, exercise of reason within the correct domain, secure from any kind of skeptical charge or skeptical doubts. Um, So we can be uh, more certain of our scientific truths and of our metaphysical views. Um, But at the same time, he wants to, as he famously put it, set the limits to reason and to uh, put aside things that he thinks reason by itself can have no access to. Um, I mentioned the existence or inexistence of God, the possibility of freedom, or the existence of an immortal soul, the origins of the universe, or the um,
2: the eternal nature of the universe
0: uh, are things that he thinks we can't, they're unknowable to us. Mm-hmm. Um, because our the nature of our reason as such cannot get a grip on such questions. So it, it, he's critiquing reason in the sense he is in, in some sense uh, as he famously says, limiting reason to make room for faith, and um, saying that some subjects are not uh, accessible to kind of rational insight, but he thinks a lot of a whole lot of other more important things, including ethics, um, metaphysics, and aesthetics, are amenable to. Uh, rational philosophy. Um, So that's a thumbnail kind of answer to what Kant means by critique. (sighs) And here's one thing he doesn't mean, quoting again from Guelza. So to brush back the influence of reason nonsense, Kant develops a critique of reason, a critical theory, if you will. I will not. And he does this by asking a series of skeptical questions about reason. All right. So what follows now is Guelzo's account of Kant's critique of reason. So I assume he's attributing this to uh, the critique of pure reason and its two editions, and the prolegomena, because that's where Kant's metaphysical, most of Kant's metaphysical project is set up, certainly his meta-metaphysical uh, project. So let's, ha- let's hear Guelzo's reconstruction of Kant's project. And so Kant does this by asking a series of skeptical questions about reason. All right, so far. All right. Here's question number one. When reason asks what is or what is not, how comprehensive is that question really? When reason asks what is or what is not, how comprehensive is that question really? Is something failing? Is something being held
2: back there? I have no idea what that
0: means. (laughs) Okay. Question number two. So we have no idea what the first stage of Kant's argument is, (laughs) but now we're moving on to the second. Question number two. When you become hesitant about reason's strength in asking questions, then ask this Why are you asking this question? What is really motivating? Question three. When you become self conscious of the real motivations for your reasoning, then Ah, that's when you see how little reason can penetrate to the real lessons of things, and you will wake to a new reality. And that reality is that reason has blinded you. This is critical theory, Mark. Mark is the podcast host. It is a procedure for unmasking one's real motivations and the real nature of things. Now, I can't stress this strongly enough. Insofar as I understand what I have just read, which is not nearly as far as I would like, that bears absolutely no resemblance to any Kantian text I am aware of, any Kantian argument found anywhere. Um, The whole thing about Reflecting on the motivations for asking questions of what is and what is not has a, just no purchase anywhere in the Kantian corpus. It's just, it, it's, I have no idea how he got this idea, what he got it from, what he pulled it out of, but it's, it's just incomprehensible. I mean, it's, it, it has nothing to do with what Immanuel Kant said. Nothing exactly nothing
2: um okay so
1: you know if you're if you want to learn more about the ideas of Kant, do not seek out um mr guelzo what is his first name alan Alan. um and you know he seems he seems confused or or something unclear why exactly or where, where he's getting his information um Okay, so let me let me see. I, I, I'm, a thought came to me. You know, this idea of you know rationality versus you know uh, the irrationality, or I don't know what exactly, but um, you know, and and Steven Pinker, who you know recently appeared on on heads. Uh, he has a new book out. And Bob Wright interviewed him. He's been on a number of times before, um, and he is, I guess, sort of like become the popularizer of Reason as a good thing, um, which is sort of, I, you know, most people probably that's, uh, you know, would accept that, you know, without reading a book by Steven Pinker um, and, you know, and also like yeah. m- progress, moral progress. And like the world is getting better. Uh, the better angel of our nature, I think was the title of one of his books that sort of like, you know, human, human reason plus technology, but human progress are leading us, you know, towards a better future where human, you know, Human flourishing is is happening more, and you know, bad stuff that happened 500 years ago, like burning witches and stuff, is happening less. Uh, this is a you know, sort of a tongue in cheek. And, also, war, and vi-
0: war, and violence are decreasing. So right. Um,
2: That's big. And okay, so
1: um, I don't know about this. You know, if you had told me, I, I whenever that first book came out, it was probably like 2013 or 14 or something. I would probably I didn't read it, but I would have said something like, "Okay, you know, sounds good to me." Um, you know, we're sort of moving, you know, slowly, <laughs> inching forward in some way. And then, you know, the past five or six years of American history have been somewhat strange, and strange things happened, and, um, and so the sort of I, I believe the term is like sort of like Whiggish or like wig in the like H W H I G. So sort of I guess idea that like things are sort of always getting better and um there's sort of a direction of, of history towards something or, or, or human betterment like that view has taken at least some blows as far as i can tell over the past couple of years as donald trump became president and a um you know massive um uh, airborne disease <laughs> uh killed a lot of people and a lot of people acted very irrationally in my view uh towards this this threat um and yeah and just the fact that yeah, there's just been a lot of weird shit happening recently. And when we talked about postmodernism, you know, it's not in our previous conversation. It's not like the fact that Trump won proves postmodernism is true. But I don't know, like ra- the rationality is not quite working as, you know, someone like Pinker would have led one to believe. And then, you know, Steven Pinker, it turns out, um... At some point, at the behest of Alan Dershowitz, wrote a some sort of affidavit or something on behalf of Jeffrey Epstein, arguing uh, using his linguistic, because Pinker's academic training is in linguistics, using some sort of linguistic argument to say that I can't remember exactly, but we'll find a link that explains what he did. And so the guy who is like the ultra rationalist is it is the Harvard professor, the guy with very important hair. In his spare time, and I assume he got paid for this by Jeffrey Epstein, you know, was probably without really understanding entirely what Jeffrey Epstein was all about, because not a lot of people understood, you know, 10 or 15 years ago, was helping this alleged, um, you know, serial child molester and uh, moral degenerate get out of a harsh prison sentence by saying that, like, some some word in some statute meant blah, blah, blah. And such that, uh, Gershaw, which client, Jeffrey Epstein would get a slap on the wrist instead of, you know, a couple years in jail for sleeping with girls. Um, and so that, you know, so rationally, the per the facts of the person who is making the case for rationalism shouldn't really matter as the arguments that matter, but, you know, sort of like the people who, We once thought, you know, knew what they were talking about. And the ultra rationalists, they've sort of like fucked up as much as anyone else over the past couple of years. So I sort of understand why there's a like anti-rationalist sort of um, spirit in the air because of all the absurd shit that's happened in public life over the past couple of years. And the fact that a lot of the type of people who argued for the sort of like benign rationalism of we'll figure this stuff out and you know that's all good and writing books about it um you know they it turned out that they were were not uh you know acting as benevolent philosopher kings or something but were like you know getting paid fifty thousand dollars to write a affidavit so that a child molester could not go to prison you know so this is enough to make one (laughs) sort of angry at the, the entire system and maybe um you know reject X, Y, Z. Does this
2: make any sense to you? I feel like I'm rambling, but...
0: Um, Ultimately, no. (laughs) Um, It's interesting the way you keep forcing me to Guelzo's defense, because um, I really wanted to come on here to hold his feet to the fire. Uh, But this is where I'm fundamentally on his side that I don't... If... um, the world has been exceptionally irrational for the past number of years. Uh, that doesn't show a problem with the basic ideals and precepts of reason. It shows a problem with us. And getting out of this into a better place means recommitting to basic ideas of uh Objectivity and evidence and rational argument and persuasion, and not um, holding at arm's length those kinds of ideals um,
1: right no, so yeah. that, that makes sense to me I, I and I'm not you know what I said before I'm not fully endorsing, but I sort of like un, like when okay, you know mr. rationality. Um, hmm. Stephen Pinker, Harvard professor, you know, genius of linguistics, et cetera, you know, comes forth with his latest book about how great rationality is. Um, I can see why there's a number of people who just say, go fuck yourself. <laughs> you know, get out of here. We're sick of we're sick of this shit. Um, you were friends with Jeffrey Epstein. Like that, so I, so maybe it's but, um, just the, 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 the psychologizing of like who is the person who is you know, speaking on behalf of reason and no one, there's no perfect person, there's no philosopher king we would want put in charge of things. But, and then, like, the whole, the fact that the whole sort of rationalist community, like, I don't know, it like, goes into these weird, um I don't know, maybe I'm just spending too much time online, but these type of people are often like, well, you know, the case for polyamory is, like, X, Y, Z. And, you know, just a, basically, you know, I... I believe I believe in that in reason and reason will ultimately help us. But the people who profess reason are just as flawed and fucked up as anyone else, and um, and that is not good for I don't know the cause of, of reason. Um, that yeah, I guess it gets so personalized into well, <clears throat> certain, certain people are X Y Z, and then when it turns out that. You know they are just a, a schmuck like anyone else. Then uh, people throw up their hands. I've thrown up my hands a lot over the past couple of years, just saying like I have no idea what's yeah. happening. And
0: yeah, well, that's um, I that's a kind of uh, mood that you get a lot across the across the political spectrum. Is this sort of um, what we've been doing is not working, and we need to find some new way. Of doing things, and a lot of the times they throw their hands up at sort of rationalism or rationality. In your in you're talking about um, Stephen Pinker and his strange situations in which he found himself. Um, the interesting inference you might make, and some people might make is that that is therefore discrediting of reason or rationality as a sort of approach to your own life. That if that's what being rational leads you into, the worst for rationality. And what's very clear is, again, on both the right and left, there's this sort of narrative that um,
2: if... Rational
0: politics was what got us the age of, and you know, what part you want to emphasize will depend on where you are, but um, if that's what got us neoliberalism and forever war and, um, you know, ballooning deficits and all these bad things we don't like, then the worst for rationality and maybe we, you know, the strategic thing is to embrace a more emotional um, form of politics or approach to politics.
1: Yeah, and and I guess the wing version of this would be like the, um, you know, neo-reactionaries or the um, like, people who want to, like, live in, like, a a Catholic, uh, you know, theocracy.
0: The Sora Bomari, Patrick Deneen, Adrian Vermeule conversation about, you know, showing, or just, you know, David Brooks just wrote a whole long piece saying that he's worried that this is going to be the new sort of basic Republican line is we can't, cooperate with liberals. They're too far gone. Um, We can't have kind of basic political reciprocity. Um, We need to sort of zealous um, really sort of uh, visceral, strident kind of brand of politics in order to sort of win the struggle, because politics is always struggle. Um, I think that's all a terrible mistake that's potentially leading the country into catastrophe. So I'm profoundly on the side of... um, Oh, and let, let me mention another deeply disturbing thing to me which we could do a whole episode about, um, is this sort of uh, refrain
2: on the left of
0: to hell with objectivity, um, which is something a lot of people, Nicole Hannah-Jones, Wesley Morris at some length, Masha Gasson, a whole bunch of people have written against the idea of objectivity. Which in, is in terms of, journal-
1: of journalism, or in terms of... Um, they don't know. In general. They don't
0: know. Uh, no, I'm, I mean, I'm not joking. And it's, it's a dangerous position because they really lack, again, they lack the philosophical skills to articulate a view. And so they get a sort of more limited and potentially reasonable... View uh, confused with a much more radical view, and they really don't know what their own position is. But it's leading us into really dangerous habits of thought. Um, so that's another expression of deep anti-rationalism. But I'm deeply on the side, along with you know, like the people at Persuasion or. Um, Well, a lot of us on the anti-woke side or with Bob, um, that what we need is more reasoning, not less and more rationality and rationality of a better kind. And if we failed in the past, it's not because um, we were too rational, but we mistook what rationality was Mm -hmm. and that um, we were too little rational, not too rational.
1: Okay, I think that might be a good place to wrap things up. Um uh, can <laughs> we've I, got we've gone uh, we've got about an hour twenty or so. Um, but what uh, can I just
0: do? Uh, <laughs> can you give me five minutes here? Yeah, sure. Okay, well, well, one more hit, one more, and then we'll and then we'll wrap up. Okay, so I mentioned those three people, um, three different essays. Um, and they all contend kind of the same things about kant and i just want to address them directly one is that kant is anti reason completely ridiculous um kant is he he comes up with a political and the moral philosophy that are thoroughly rationalistic a lot of the leading figures in developing a thoroughly rationalistic ethics from Shelley Kagan to Tom Nagel to uh, Christine Korsgaard have all been Kantians and turned back to Kant. And Kant sees um, reason as fundamental to religious, political, uh, moral life all the way down. He's a thoroughly rationalist philosopher. And uh, in fact, some of the most harshly rationalist uh, Perhaps of all the uh, Enlightenment philosophers, so Kant is anti-Enlightenment. That's another thing people have said. Um, again, just wildly, ridiculously wrong. I've already I did touch on this in the last dialogue. Kant is the apotheosis of the Enlightenment. He is the best Enlightenment philosopher and the most Enlightenment-y philosopher. He. He's like the most individualist, the most rationalist, um, distrustful of emotion, just running down the list. He's extremely positive on science, uh, admiring of science. In, In every aspect, he's quintessentially an Enlightenment philosopher. He did not start a movement against the Enlightenment. He wrote one of the classic statements of Enlightenment ideals. Um, and the other thing is that, and we have hit on this sort of stuff, but the, the idea that Kant is the founder of critical theory or um, the Casey Williams essay, she says, the bedrock claim of critical philosophy going back to Kant is simple. We can never have certain knowledge about the world in its entirety completely ridiculous, claiming to know the truth is therefore a kind of assertion of power. And that's, all three of these guys kind of take a similar view, that Kant makes knowledge a kind of will-o'-the-wisp. And so it's, you can't really know, so it's just a question of power dynamics. That is not a Kantian thesis. Kant never maintained that. I'm absolutely certain Kant would be disgusted by that idea. That's exactly the kind of view he wanted to resist. He, in fact, wanted to um, provide a sure foundation for reason in reasoning in science, reasoning in ethics, reasoning in aesthetics. He wanted to uh, put it on the surest footing he possibly could. It's, uh, and this idea of a straight line from Kant to critical theory, You got me dead to rights. They both used the word critical. (laughs) But, you know, critical theory developed in the 20th century. That's after the passing of the torch from Kant to Hegel. That's after Feuerbach changed Hegel's thought, and after Marx and Engels changed Feuerbach's thought. And then critical theory emerges at the time where Horkheimer, Adorno, um, uh, uh who, who am I looking at? Um, uh, the... Inumen? Uh, what? No, uh... <laughs> no, um... Oh, now I'm just, I blocked it out of my brain, so,
2: um... The, uh, uh
0: the... The prison notebooks, anyway. Um, those oh, guys Gramsci.
1: were-
0: Gramsci. Gramsci. Thank you. Um, the, I only
1: took one philosophy class in college. So I was <laughs> able to pull that one out.
0: Yeah. Um, Antonio Gramsci. Uh, those guys were self-consciously changing Marxist thought. So they're giving you this vision that there's this sort of continuity from Kant uh, in the 1780s and 90s. All the way to critical theories in the 1920s, there's a gap <laughs> of a hundred years there that completely is, you know, here's Kant, here's critical theory, and then here's all this different stuff between them. We haven't talked about Schelling and Fichte and the transition to absolute idealism from transcendental idealism even before Hegel. That that kind of massive flat thing of intellectual history is just um, ridiculous. And like Marx was a thir- pretty thoroughly rationalist philosopher in that way, many quite continuous with the uh, Enlightenment. That he based his theory on economic and political and historical evidence. Um, whether it's convincing or not is one thing, but he's playing the game the mm-hmm. way all the Enlightenment philosophers did, and showing, expecting to persuade on the basis of evidence, logic, argument. Um and Marx would have hated the postmodernists, and most Marxists have hated postmodernists ever since, um, in his stead. Mm-hmm. So just And none of these things are controversial. Nothing I just said is some unique, tendentious opinion of my own about the history of philosophy. Those are just very basic groundwork statements that I think almost anyone on any side of the divides would agree with. Mm -hmm. Um, So these guys, and you know, the place where I want to end is. This is not okay Uh, for a rich, ostensibly educated nation to be able to have these conversations no better than we are, uh, is not something we should accept. Uh, The impoverishment of our intellectual discourse is striking and concerning. And I welcome any attempt to try to raise the tone and the substance and get down more into real depth with uh, these figures and with our intellectual history because, um, man, this is just crap.
1: Um, (laughs) Let me, one other thing I I did want to note. So, you know, so getting back to Mark Thiessen's essay the you know he indicts critical race theory you know we've talked about why is the problem is that and th- then here's the last line of that essay this is why CRT is so dangerous and must never be used to indo- indoctrinate america's children so he ends with like the most classic moral panic kind of thing think of the children the poor innocent children they're they're being infected they're being indoctrinated we have to save the children like it, like that is you know if you have a child Appealing to a threat to that child is like the most irrationalist, you know, emotionalist thing you can do is say your children are under threat. And the fact that you know Moron Mark Thiessen wrote this thing about you know his great appeal to rationalism, and then he ends with, with this totally emotional thing of you know, consider the children, um, is you know too too absurd uh for, for satire, I would say. Um, and okay. Let's 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 end things there, David. If people want well, to follow you, follow your work. Where should they? Where should they do so?
0: But the thing they should take from that irony is to be more rational, not less. Not to give up on reason.
1: Right. Yeah. Um, even the guy who's professing the case for reason falls into emotional emotional appeal in the same you know five paragraphs after he supposedly defends reason. So he, but he's a, he's a moron and a fake and. It should be run out on a rail if there were any justice uh, in, the, in this world, but there isn't. Um, okay, yeah. So, where, where, if people want to follow your work, where should they do so?
0: Um, at David Ottlander, O T T L I N G E R at Twitter. Um, I'm hoping to have something up on Arc Digital before too long. Um, I may do a conversation with Dan Kaufman. We've been talking about. on um, Uh. Both gender identity and identity in and of itself, and what identity means in, um, in ethical life. So, people check out his blog at the Electric Agora um, at Blogspot. Uh, yeah. And I don't know. Who knows? Maybe you'll have me here, <laughs> here again. So, check out here.
1: Yeah. So, this is, you know, this is now the culture determined has his own YouTube channel now. Um, separate from the main blogging his YouTube channel. So if you want to keep following my content, the, the best way to do it is to subscribe on YouTube or subscribe on your favorite podcast app and, you know, like and tell your friends and all that other stuff that people in <laughs> podcasts and YouTube videos tell their audiences to do. You could do all those things also. Um, so, okay. This has been an interesting conversation, David. Thank you for suggesting mm-hmm. it and thank you to our viewers and listeners,
2: and we'll see you next time.